We are in Galatians, if you want to turn to Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at a few verses, verses 17 to 21, and today, of course, we are going to be picking up where Rob left off last week, Um, but before we get into these verses, verses 17 to 21, let me just do a very quick recap, if that's okay. So, Paul had publicly rebuked Peter because he'd moved away from the gospel of grace But Peter really should have known better, shouldn't he? Because actually, even previously in Acts chapter 15, during the Jerusalem conference, it was Peter who'd asked the question, why are you loading up new believers with these crushing rules that just aren't necessary for salvation? In fact, this list of religious rituals that these new Gentile Christians were being asked to do was too much for even the most devoted of Jews to bear. But since that moment... Peter had now put himself under the same impossible burden, and he was adding to grace. And Paul is not having it, not for a moment. In fact, he will not allow anybody to undermine the gospel of grace, no matter who they are. And as we heard last week, we are saved and we are secured in our salvation only and completely because we have been justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So in verses 17 to 21, Paul puts forward some further defense of justification by faith in two ways. The first is this. Paul deals with the accusation that justification and grace actually have a negative effect on how people live. See, some people were claiming that because grace is free... I can do whatever I please. So grace is actually being blamed for leading people into this sort of blasé view about sin to do whatever they want. In other words, their argument was grace leads to moral failure. So Paul, first of all, deals with this accusation. Then secondly, Paul goes on to show that grace actually is the very opposite. In fact, it could not further be from the truth. Grace is priceless. It, is, it produces this wonderful, far-reaching change that comes through knowing that you're accepted by God, that your identity is in Jesus Christ. And actually, if you know this, then grace will lead to you living a very different type of life. So first of all, the objection. So you look at verse 17. We're just going to read, the, read just a few, a few lines of it. It says this. But if... In seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves almost also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Now, this, there's a little bit of ambiguity, I guess, in this first sentence of verse 17. Maybe a little bit difficult to understand, but at the very least, it pushes us to explore the question that we've just mentioned. If I believe I'm justified by Christ and not by keeping the law, does that mean I can break the law, I can sin, I can do just whatever I like? So again, some Jews were saying that the gospel of salvation, that by grace through faith in Christ alone, meant that any incentive to obey God was completely gone. So why bother? You know, if if God's grace is going to forgive me in the end, why would I bother? And their argument, surely grace is leading to this lowering of moral standards compared to those who live under the law. Paul answers this question in a rather curt, in fact, in a very direct way. He says, absolutely not. Don't be so ridiculous. His his first response to the horror of such blasphemy is not some theological argument, but the strong sense 
that is utterly inconsistent with the revealed nature and character of God. Listen, if you understand anything of God's love for you, God's mercy, and God's powerful character, display it most fully, beautifully, and yet painfully at the cross, where God's only son Jesus sacrificed his life to save you, you would never come out with such nonsense. Later on, Paul will deal with this in more detail, but for now, he just bluntly says, no way, it's not happening, no way. You don't know God, and you don't know the nature of God. Let me add, listen, just because grace is freely given, it doesn't mean it's cheap. If you think that grace permits or excuses sin, you've missed the whole point of how much it costs Jesus Listen, even before he went to the cross, he was beaten in the most horrendous of ways. The the leather whip that was used was embedded with small balls of of lead that first produced these deep, large bruises that then broken up by subsequent beatings. Finally, the skin of the back is is just hanging in, in, in long ribbons, and the entire area is unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue as the as the blows of that whip cut deep into his back. Listen, some of the prisoners who received this didn't even survive the whipping. And listen, they were the lucky ones. The whole time Jesus was jeered and he was mocked as he was led to the place of crucifixion. When he got there, he was, he was forced down onto a wooden cross. The soldiers would then feel for the little depression in the front of the wrist. And they would drive a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood on both sides. The left foot was then placed on top of the right one and, then, and, and the feet were extended with the toes pointing downwards and a nail was driven through the arches. And the cross was lifted into place and dropped into the ground. The victim is now crucified. But every breath is excruciatingly painful for Jesus as he pushes himself up on the nails, as he pulls himself up from his wrist. A French surgeon writes that Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, shearing pain where the tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves himself up and down against the rough timber. But listen, this physical pain is only a small part of what it cost Jesus, what Jesus suffered on the cross, because there was also the spiritual pain. The perfect, sinless Jesus took upon himself the sin of this world. He faced the righteous anger of God in your place and in my place. Listen, we have got no idea how much or what it would have been like to be separated from God, his Father, as he hung there. This was sheer hell. Well, listen, there's nothing cheap about grace. There's nothing cheap about grace. So why would we willfully sin? Why would we choose to disobey God? Listen, the gift of salvation is priceless, and the finished work of the cross that paid for all our sins meant that through faith in Christ alone, you have received the righteousness of Jesus. So listen, your salvation is not dependent on your effort, but it is by grace alone. This is such good news, but it's not cheap. It's not cheap. 
And if you keep on with the same lifestyle after receiving Christ and grace becomes some excuse for disobeying God's word and doing whatever you want, you cheapen grace, you jeer, you mock at Jesus all over again and you do not fully love God. You cannot love God. Paul goes on, verse 18. If I rebuild what I destroy, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Again, this verse is another little tricky sentence. And so what does it mean? Well, Paul may be having another go at Peter here. He's, he's definitely speaking out against the Judaizers who were who had reinforced this, who was who sorry, had reintroduced the law keeping as an essential for salvation. You see, in their opinion, grace just doesn't give enough motive to live for God. So they had tragically rebuilt the very structures of human merit that had come crashing down for Paul on the Damascus Road. If you'd met Paul before his conversion experience, this dramatic encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, if you'd got to Paul and, and Paul had been made to, set an, to sit an exam about how good he was, he would have walked out of that exam room and he would probably have thought, I've got an A-star. I've done so well. But to his shock, when he met Jesus, he realized that God had awarded him a big, fat you. But actually, perhaps there's always been a little bit of doubt going on within his mind. Maybe that nagging fear that even all of his best efforts could never earn favor with God. But what, when he sees Christ on the cross, he realizes all of the love, all of the grace that was necessary to save him. He has to freely admit that all of his nagging fears were true. Because not only was it possible that he might have failed God's standard, but also it was impossible for him to ever meet it in the first place. And a whole lifetime of pursuing this moral effort of working at his own righteousness was wasted. Like all religious people, he had enough morality to keep himself out of trouble, but not enough to get himself into heaven. And it, it certainly wasn't bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus, but for him to come to Jesus, he had to lose his religion in order to find salvation. And Paul confesses his sin. He turns, he repents of his sin. In fact, he realizes that he is no different from even a Gentile Listen, you need to ask yourself the same question. What are you relying on? It could be your lovely, respectable family. It could be a fine Christian heritage or morality or giving or involvement within church or Bible knowledge or prayers or just experiencing something of God's presence as you sing certain worship songs. Listen, God says that all of those things add up to a you grade. They are worthless. They are useless. These things make God sad, not happy. And what we do will never reach God's perfect standards. They will never get you into heaven. Listen, if you stop to examine your life, you will get a shock, just as Paul did. Because when Jesus got his attention, Paul realized that there are two types of righteousness. A work-based righteousness and a faith-based righteousness. But only faith righteousness is acceptable to God. Now, don't get me wrong. 
The law has a purpose. But actually the very best that could be said about the law is that it shows us that we are lawbreakers. But it does not lead to salvation. Only Jesus does that. So if you've been saved by faith, but you go back to legalism, you go back to the law, Paul argues that all you're doing is building up what was once torn down. The implication being that if you need the law plus God's grace, you actually sinned by tearing it down in the first place. In other words, Paul is saying you can't have it both ways. If the grace of God is not enough for you to live as a Christian, then it's not enough to save you either. However, you have been saved by God's grace, and you're also kept by God's grace. So don't go back to law. Don't go back to works. Don't go back to this work-based righteousness and deny everything that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. In verses 19 to 20, Paul continues with his argument. Let's just read the verses. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When Rachel goes on holidays, she has, a couple, she has at least one pet hate. Little mosquitoes in the bedroom. And not surprisingly, because they actually bite her ridiculously ridiculous amount. I seem to get off without any bites. She gets covered in bites. So when we go to bed at night, she listens very carefully. And if she hears even the very slightest hum of an insect... Whatever time of night that may be, all lights go on. She, she will then search, she will find, and she will kill any bug that is found in our room at night. No mercy. See, if that mosquito is not put to death, she knows that she'll get multiple bites that will ruin her enjoyment of the holiday. And removing the problem, in fact, putting it to death, means that she can enjoy life. Paul says... I have put to death the law and self-effort. Why? So that I can live for God. In fact, he tells us actually where that death took place. He was crucified on the cross with Christ. Now, of course, we know he wasn't actually physically on the cross with Jesus, but his identity is so linked in with Christ that he is inseparable from him. This once for all of Paul's conversion means that there is no going back. Perhaps he remembers those three dark days of agony in straight street before Ananias came to him and the light of the gospel just streamed into his life. Whatever the reason, he would never again turn to the law looking to it as a path of light. Jesus has opened up his eyes physically but also more significantly spiritually. And in Christ, he has found truth and he has found life. And the point that Paul is making is that he never really lived for God when he was trying to save himself through obedience of the law. Yes, he'd been very moral. Yes, he'd bed all the rules. Yes, he could tick all the boxes probably better than anybody else can. He had been pretty good, but it was all done for Paul, not for God. But now that he's justified, now that he's accepted... 
Paul has a new motive for obeying that is far more powerful. He simply wants to live for the one who loves me and give himself for me. See, there's no getting around it. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are the key truths of the gospel. In fact, nothing else makes sense. We are saved by faith in Christ. But like Paul, we should be so identified with Jesus Christ by his spirit that you die with him. This means that you are dead to the law, to selfishness, to pride. To go back to such things is actually to return to the graveyard. Instead, you have been raised to walk in new life. This is Romans 6 verse 4, which Rob just read as we finished worship. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in new life. This is not surprising as some people claim that Galatians was perhaps the first draft for the letter for the Romans. There's every good reason why, but both Galatians and Romans are making this point. Since you live by the Spirit and are therefore filled with the resurrection power, you do not need to keep the law, or you don't need the help of the law. So if you're struggling with habitual sin, if you're struggling with disobedience of God, you don't need to pull your socks up or to try a little bit harder. You need more of the Spirit. You need more of Jesus. You need more of God within your life. Loving Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit gives Christians a new and a far stronger motive for obeying God than just trying harder. Trying harder will not work. Does it work? No. Listen, Paul is revolted by this work-based righteousness. But again, these verses, they're not so much an exhortation to personal sanctification. They are a powerful argument for the total sufficiency of the work of Christ. However, it does deal with our Christian service. And the central thought is this need for a complete removal of the old way of thinking. It's a call for a full and a complete commitment to Jesus. There needs to be this radical reorientation in our thinking. So just as Christ's death meant a total change in the relationship to the things around him, and in particular to the law, you see, at the very basic level, the cross was, for Christ, a complete break from life. Death means life is over. That's nothing radical in that statement, really. So in one sense, every human death is a break from life. However, for Christ, it's true in a much deeper sense. After all, in his lifetime, he had perfectly fulfilled the law, which by contrast, we have utterly failed. But for both Jesus and for the Christian, the law is now no more. For Paul, the law had no hold, no claim over his life. Long ago, he'd been set free from the agony of this fruitless effort, this work-based righteousness. And listen, for a self-righteous Pharisee, that is an agonizing process. Listen, it's not easy to give up and to put to death pride within our lives. It's not easy to put to death self-esteem. This is a painful thing to admit. But the result is a new freedom and joy that brings release and relief to make it impossible to turn back. Paul had found his freedom through Jesus Christ. I wonder, have you? Do you know him? 
Do you know what that means to know your freedom in Christ? We've been singing about it. We've been declaring it. Listen, we need to know it in our own lives. But this is more than just putting to death pride and selfishness. There's a very positive side to a spiritual life and to power. The King James Version succinctly translated as this, Nevertheless, I live. And Paul wants to shout. He says, I am alive. Why? Because Christ lives in me. See, in the old days, it was the law that had dominated his thinking and filled his entire horizon. Now, it is Christ. Christ is the sole meaning of of life for him. Every moment is lived in conscious dependency on him. In everything, he looks to Jesus. Listen, this is the Christian faith. It is this intimate, personal, but life-giving power of the Spirit where Jesus Christ is all-consuming. He is our everything. This is the lavish, the reckless, the abundant grace of God. This is the way in which we should be living. Perhaps summed up in one little statement from Paul in verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And if you have turned from your sins, from your pride, and you're following Jesus, you have been saved by the grace of God in Christ. Listen, he is all that you need. And if you add anything else to that, if it's God's grace plus my own strength, or God's grace plus some religious activity, Christ died in vain. His death was for nothing. You think about it this way. Christ is either everything for you or he's nothing. So what does Jesus mean to you? Listen, he is either everything or he's nothing. You don't get to sit in the middle on this one. There is no fence. You must choose. He's either everything or he's nothing. Paul is very clear. If you go back to the old way of behavior, if you go back to the law, you set aside the grace of God. You openly deny the gospel. And listen, grace is challenging. It it, it means admitting that you are a sinner, that you can only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. However, our pride, our self-esteem likes to do something. The reason why the law is so attractive is because the law says do. And listen, we like to do, don't we? But grace says done. When Jesus died on the cross, he declared, it is finished. Ephesians 2 verse 8, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Listen, Paul was convinced that Jesus Christ had done for him what he could never have done for himself. Perhaps there's one man who understood this as much as Paul did. That was Martin Luther. Luther lived a life of such discipline, of such self-denial, of even self-torture. He said, if ever a man could be saved by being a monk, I am that man. He went to Rome. It's considered this great act of of merit to climb the great sacred stairway called the, the Scala Sancta on your hands and knees. You'd literally crawl up this staircase. And as he worked his way upwards, seeking to find fulfillment and find merit, suddenly there came to him a voice from heaven. 
The just shall live by faith. And in that moment, he realized that a life at peace with God could not be obtained by some futile, never-ending, ever-defeating effort. It could only be by casting himself on the love and on the mercy of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, it's only when a man or a woman gives up their pride and abandons themselves to the forgiving love of God that you can find peace with God. There's an old hymn. The writer is F.P. F.W. Faber, he puts it like this. Pining souls, come nearer Jesus. And O come, not doubting thus, but with faith that trusts more bravely his huge tenderness for us. If our love were but more simple, we should take him at his word and our lives would all be sunshine in the sweetness of our Lord. Let me just finish with these few sentences. Listen, you must take God at his word and give up the darkness of the law and listen, all of its frustrations. But also you need to put to death sin, put to death self-centered desires. Listen, that will ultimately just destroy you and get serious about Jesus, about his love for you. Listen, you need to love him as much as he first loved you and then live under the sunshine of God's grace. Listen, there is no greater place to be under the sunshine of God's grace. And God just wants to remind us today, stop trying. Stop working so hard. Listen, you can, you can work as hard as you want, but listen, you will never reach his perfect standard, but you turn to Christ. Find your hope, find your joy, find your everything in Jesus. He is all that you need. There are no extras. There are no add-ons needed. He'll do everything that you need for you. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. Lord, there's a simplicity to it and yet a complex nature to it as well as we, we delve into some of these verses. They're not always easy to read or even fully understand. But Lord, the simplicity of the message of the gospel is so that even the youngest child can get it. Lord, we simply need you. And Father, I just pray as we stand in your presence this Sunday, 14th of October, that by your Spirit, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, for those that just feel they need to do more, they need to try harder, Lord, set them free from that. Lord, from the burden, from the challenge, Lord, as they come and turn to you, Lord, open their eyes to see the truth of what you've done, of your grace, of your love, so unimaginable, Lord, so wonderful. Lord, set people free today. Lord, for those, Lord, that are, don't know you yet, Father, that you would meet them this morning. Lord, speak to them. Lord, by your Spirit, do a work of grace once again in people's lives. Lord, for those that are living far from you, Lord, are using grace as an excuse to do whatever they want. Father, I pray, God, forgive them. 
Lord, I pray for knees that will be bent before you in complete surrender, that we would give you everything. Everything to you, Lord Jesus, we pray. And Lord, we just ask, Holy Spirit, help us in this. Because even all of these things we cannot do without your strength, without your power. Lord, we live in absolute, complete dependency on you. So Lord, help us. Help us because we're weak and we're frail and we go away, go astray so easily. Lord, we pray, help us. By your Spirit. We ask that in your precious name, Lord Jesus. With absolute confidence. Because of the cross. Because of your love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.